Okay, let's go back to Psalm 1 then. <clears throat> and if you'll remember in our last session, what we did was we were covering, um, basically it was taking off from the topical Bible study that we were doing and going to more of a verse-by-verse -verse exposition. Now, I want to step, take a step back and say there's nothing wrong with a topical Bible study. For example, love forgiveness, mercy, grace. Those are great words that you can actually, fellowship, church. Um, those are all words that you can use spending time in God's word to find out what God's word has to say about each one of those. Now, for example, let's take the word love. Now, the English language does not really convey the same thing that the Greek does. In, in, in uh, English, we would say, I love you. But how do we say a more superlative version of I love you? You have to add something to it, right? Right, really love you. So you have to have, have an adverb. You have to give some kind of describer. Uh, you have to put a prepositional phrase on the end. You know, I love you to the moon and back or whatever. Very much. Um, and so these are things that we have to add, but when you look at the scriptures, there are, of course, a number of different ways that love. There are actually seven different forms of love that were represented in, um, in the classical Greek or in, in Bible times. There were seven different words that could be used. And those words, out of those words, there are only really three different kind of words that are used. One is a reference to love between one another, but the, the two biggest references really, one would be a phileo love. And in English, we see this in John chapter 20, um, or chap chapter 20 or 21, where Peter is speaking with Jesus on the shore, and he says, Peter, do you love me? Well, in English, we see that, do you love me? And we think, well, yeah, of course. I mean, we all say that we love Jesus, right? Well, that's not the word that, that Peter ends up using. And what Jesus is asking him is, do you, do you agape me? Now, there's a big difference between our love and a love here. And I believe the closest that you will find two passages where you will find what this love really means, number one, is going to be where Jesus is speaking through uh, Paul in the book of Ephesus, chapter 5, and he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? I mean, th this is the this is the... The core, the essence of the gospel. He died for them. Okay, so agape love is actually a an all-consuming, self-sacrificing love. So if we're sitting down and, and you invite us over to your house for dinner and you bring out a pan of really nice looking brownies, oh, I love brownies. Amen. That's emotional love. 
Well, well, it's it's it really has nothing to do with the emotion because we can say, "I love brownies," you know. Some, I re- we can say I like brownies, but then if somebody is sitting there and, and I said to you we're having a conversation, I said, you know, I like brownies. Yeah. Or I say, I love brownies. There's a, there's a higher superlative that is there, but it's still not this. It's not an all-consuming, self-sacrificing love whereby I would be willing to lay down my life to be able to eat a pan of brownies. <laughs> now, I might lay down my life after I eat an entire pan of brownies, but that's different, okay? So John is, John is speaking, and he writes, and, and, and John, if you were to ever take Greek, one of the things that, that is of interest is, does anybody have any idea the two books that you would start with just... Just take a guess what two books you would actually start with if you were taking Greek class. John, John and? No, not a chance. Uh, no, nope. First John. John and? It, because it's a love chapter. Exactly. And John speaks Greek very, very precisely in what he's writing down. So when he uses this word, he uses a word that we... You may recognize this word, but it is phileo. Phileo. P H I L E O. And if we added this first part of Greek, phila, and then added the word for Delphos, which is brother, what do you get? Philadelphia. Philadelphia. It's the city of brotherly love. See, now you guys know Greek. You're all scholars. So, there is, phileo is used in a couple of different ways. It can mean a brotherly type love, or it can also refer to a, the love of a friend. I love you, man. Could be a way that it's, that, that, that we use it in the English language. Um, I wouldn't say, I love you to somebody the same way that I would to my wife or maybe to my kids. But the phileo love when he's speaking and he is speaking in this particular passage, what he is actually saying is this. Let me translate for you. Jesus says, Peter, do you have an agape love for me? Now, what has just happened to Peter? What has he just done? Denied the Lord. Denied the Lord. Is that all? Was it just a simple denial? Right, so he rejected him. So how many times did he deny him? Three. Three times. So he not only denied him three times, but the third time he actually invokes an imprecation against himself in the way that he speaks. He says, may I be cursed by God is actually the term that is used. Should I even know that man? To know there is to have a personal relationship with him. For example, if, if, if I were to say to you um, that I know Mason, for example, the only thing I really know about Mason is a few things that he has shared with me about himself. really don't know about his family. I don't know about his upbringing. don't know about any of that kind of stuff. don't really know about much about the church that he came from. But if we sat down... And we had a lengthy conversation and he gives me all this factual information about him. Do I, can I still, or can I then say, I know Mason? Yes. 
Okay, well, we've got a little bit of a relationship there, right? What does it actually take from me to get to know someone? Come on, Gabe, this is, this is your bailiwick, brother. I'm grossing these peanuts. Oh, well, leave the peanuts till later. Um, it's spending time with them. Um, there we go. Getting to know them. It's um, having a building that relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, it's communicating throughout the week and um, making sure that you are sharing with each other uh, intimate information or personal information. Exactly. So uh, let, let's take this a step further for for those who were anybody here ever see like Schindler's List um, or uh, Band of Brothers or, or or anything like that. There is no way that we can know what it was like to be in one of those camps, or to know what it was like to be on the beaches of Normandy, because we weren't there. We didn't have a personal relationship with everybody that was there, and and that entire scene has been set. However. I remember reading some of the accounts of those who were actually uh, uh, portraying some of the people who were in those movies. And they said it absolutely changed their life when they were over there and they were reestablishing some of the things and recreating some of the scenes because they knew then what it was actually like. But again, it still only went so far because they're dodging fake bullets. They're not dodging real bullets. It wasn't a matter of life and death. So if I say to somebody, yes, I know this individual, you can say, well, how well do you know them? Well, you know, we're, we're friends. This, this, is, this is essentially what Peter is saying. Yes, you know, Lord, that we are phileo, we are friends. I love you like a brother. And Jesus is asking him, do you really love me that deeply? Like you said you did. I mean, not not, but three or four days ago, you were the one that said, Lord, although everybody else will deny you, I will never deny you. And yet, Peter's the only one that's actually recorded by name of having actually fled Jesus. The others were there and we're told that they all left, but nobody calls them by name except for Peter. And so this conversation is going on between the Lord and between Peter. And he says, Peter, Jesus asks him the first time, do you agape me? Do you really have an all, all consuming? Because remember, if you've read the account, you know what's coming at the end. You know what he's going to tell Peter is going to happen to him. He's going to be crucified on a cross just like Jesus was. That's all consuming. That's self-sacrificial. Because he is eventually willing. Jesus changes Peter's heart and he comes to the point where he is willing, he is willing to be that sacrifice. In fact, tradition states, whether it's true or not, but tradition states that when Peter was taken to the cross, that he told the executioner that he wanted to be crucified upside down because he was not worthy to be crucified the same manner that Jesus was. Now, again, whether that's true or not, it's not something that we could preach. But, again, it's an interesting point from tradition. So let's go back to the story. Before we get to the crucifixion, before we get to everything else, Peter is speaking here and he says, Yes, Lord, you know that you know all things. This is the word he's used. And you mentioned last night, Ginosko, I believe, or Ginomai. 
So he's speaking about a knowing relationship. Lord, you know all things. He's not, Peter's not questioning the sovereignty of God here. Peter could have stayed silent, and Peter already knows what Jesus knows about his own heart. And so Jesus asks him the second time, Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me with that all-consuming, self-sacrificial love that you said you were willing to lay down even your life for me? Peter, I don't have to remind you, but I'm sure it's got to be going through your head. We were just in the Garden of Gethsemane about five days ago, and you couldn't even stay awake to pray with me. But yet, you think we've got a relationship. Do you really love me, Peter? How much do you love me? Oh, Lord, you know that I phileo you. Lord, again, you know all things. You know that we're friends. You know that I like you. I mean, you're, you're a cool guy. You're, you're the Messiah. Yeah, we, we recognize that. There, there's no question about who you are. Yes, you really are here. You really did die on the cross. I really did see you from afar after I've hung my head in shame for denying you and seeing what you went through while I am living the high life. I'm warming my hands by the fire in the palace denying the servant girl who comes up and talks to me and says, do you know him? While you're taking the beating of your life and being crucified. Yeah, Lord, you you know all things. You know I can't really love you like that. And then Jesus says to him the third time, Peter, do you really phileo me? So he uses Peter's term. Peter's in the English, the way that it reads, you would think that Peter is actually upset because Jesus asks him three times in a row. It had nothing to do with the amount of times that he was asked. It's because Jesus uses Peter's own words against him. And he says, are we really a friend? What kind of a friend are we, Peter? Lord, Come on, you know all things. And it's then that Jesus says to Peter, when you get older, this is what's going to happen. Now, now you would think, Brother Ryan, that, that Peter would learn his lesson. I mean, here he is, he's sitting around the fire, he's just denied the Lord and, and everything else that's gone on. And John records an interesting event that happens right at the end of that. But, 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 but Lord, what about him? What about John? Peter, I'm talking to you. This relationship that you and I have, this is between us. This is personal. This is an intimate relationship. If he remains alive until I return again, what is that to you? And the next time we find Peter is in the book of Acts and he is standing preaching with power and there are 3,000 people saved. That's an amazing transformation that only God can do. So, I think it's very interesting too that, you know, in John, because of his love, because he wasn't quite so cynical, he wasn't quite so old and cranky. Yeah. But Matthew being a little bit older, in the book of Matthew, Peter denies, that's it. You do not see Peter at the end of that. You don't see him the rest of the book. 
Nope. You don't pick him up until the other books. He's done with him. And I think there's there's that that brethren side of him that he was done with him. Yeah. Because he complete he's done he's done writing about him. He doesn't even insinuate anything else that went on from there on out regarding Peter. And again, it's interesting. Thank you for that. It's interesting that John. Do you remember who John even was? I mean, a lot of people talk, he's the beloved disciple. He's the one whom Jesus probably loved the most. It's more than likely dad has a series on the apostles. And it's more than likely that John was probably the youngest of all of the disciples. He obviously lived the longest. Tradition states that he died around 80, 99, or 100. That's a pretty good age. But do you remember who John actually was? Sons of Thunder. Him and his brother James. Lord, would you that we call down fire from heaven? No, it's not that we want you to do it, Lord. We want to be able to do it because we want to feel the power. In those circles, well, we are told that that John was related. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah, in the book of John, he was the one that got Peter into the. Was he the one that got him in to the garden? Into into the into the palace, yeah, into the courtyard. Mm-hmm. Yep. So whether he was, I mean, it's interesting that even though they would, even if they did have that political connection, James is actually one of the first martyrs. You know, his own brother, and yet he lives for another 60, 70 years after the events of, of Acts. So again, it's important that when we are looking at these passages that, that, that are these words, make sure that you're doing due diligence to the word. And, and don't, don't, don't go in there, and if you were to look in a, in a Strong's Concordance, I, I, I thought somebody had brought one in, but in a Strong's Concordance, if you actually have the concordance itself, and, and and I'll actually make some copies of you uh, for you next week uh, or for, for the next class to be able to show you how you can actually do it in a book. It is actually different than doing it on your Blue Letter Bible. Um, but to be able to do that, and you may find whatever words you choose, that there's actually six or seven or even 10 or, or 14 different derivatives of that Greek word. And it's important not just to know what that word means, but what the tenses are um, and, and how that's actually used. So, for example, when we, sp- when, we, when we speak of Jesus being on the cross, it is finished. He doesn't mean that it's the end of the crucifixion six hours. He actually means it is finished. A once for all sacrifice has now been completed once for all time, forevermore. There would never be another sacrifice that is needed. This is what brings us to the book of Hebrews. Would, Mike. Um, that's a, that part right there, probably the Mormons even, would get that confused once and for all. They try to interpret it as for everyone instead of the time. Mm-hmm. It specifically says in the Greek, 
once and for all is a, uh, I forget the word, but it's a Greek word standing for time. Yeah, to tell us it's an aorist yeah. tense verb. Yeah, yeah. And, yep. and, and there's a lot of, I guess you can say KJV, no offense on your Bibles, sir. No, he's he's got it. No, he uses a New King James. Oh, okay. Well, you know what I mean. <laughs> that, in that circle, there's a lot of folks that are in that circle that tend to do that, um, interpret it that way. Yeah. In other words, they don't seem to dig into a lot of the background and the language like we're talking about right now. Yeah. And 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 that actually is what brings. Did you have something, Scott? Oh, I was just going to say, you know, in getting into the background too, it's something you put on your grandson left. Here he is. This is the age of our disciples right here. So when Jesus is talking about love and relationships and stuff like that, it's the stuff we deal with with our teenagers today. Except a little deeper. But we're dealing with we're dealing with the same. So when he's talking about sacrificing and all these things, he's leading them forward knowing what's, what's ahead of them. You deal with this if it were, you know, I, I love some of the pictures, you know, where they're old grizzled, haggled men. I'm not changeable. I'm not as relatable. I'm not as easily formed boys are. It's harder for me, it would have been harder for me to drop everything and follow him. Not that I wouldn't, you know, well, I probably wouldn't have because we're old. But with boys, you, you start looking at, see, look at these relationships. Agape, all-consuming self-sacrifice. Listen to what he talks about when he says he loves brownies. It's all consuming. He would die for that pan of brownies in his brain because we're young. We're, we're emotional. Yeah. We're an emotional train wreck up and down and all over. John is an up and down. Peter is just all over the place. He doesn't know what to do with those emotions. Yeah. That helps with that context. And it helps with these words. I'm looking at the different levels of, of Greek words that I've forgotten. 99% of them, but all of them having very specific, there's Philadelphia, the love, which includes brethren, mm -hmm. and there's also the Philadelphos, which is the love of, the, or as brethren. Yep. So there's that. There's, there's all kinds of really cool words that you can really get into. But. And, and once, once it's, it's interesting, once you get those roots and you start putting them together, it's like, oh wow, that makes an awful lot of sense all like, of a sudden. Uh, like the uh, love of strangers is xenos, or like uh, xenos, like xenophobia. Yep, yep. Philoxenos is the love of strangers or hospitality. Who knew? Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it's it's interesting. <laughs> it's it's interesting that with I, and I have heard I have heard before that John in your series, do you give? Assign or assign an age to John in the ministry of the Lord. Probably in his thirties. In, in his thirties, I have read that he was possibly as the youngest. He was possibly sixteen or seventeen. Um, and and here here's here's why. Now I think Peter was older. Um, Peter, James uh, were probably older. They were fishers. They actually leave their business. Uh, their father had to have been doing well enough. He's going to have to hire replacements for them. But at what age does a does a boy become a man in Jewish culture? Fourteen, twelve. Oh, well. Twelve. Yeah. Fourteen. Twelve. Well, twelve or thirteen, depending on the the time of the. Yeah. Yeah. When you look at Mary, Mary's eleven, twelve years old. Who? Mary. She's a young. 
Yeah, she, she, well, she would have, well, we're not given a specific age, but more than likely she was a young teenager. Um, but what happens in Jewish culture when a boy becomes a man at 12? Does anybody know? Huh? Well, they do now. Anybody have any idea? Nope. Well, they they can. They would be they would be enabled, but that generally did not happen in a Jewish culture until they got older. They they had to establish their own home um, or be able to build onto the father's home. Um, what's that? They could, but there was something else that every Jewish boy went through when they go to bar. Well, that was actually earlier on, but. What they actually did was they were joined to a rabbinical teacher. A rabbinical teacher. In other words, a rabbi. So it's quite possible, it's quite possible that, for example, do you remember the, the incident where John is in prison and some of his disciples come to Jesus and they say, are you the one? And he says, come and see, essentially to them, and they join themselves to him. Now, Jesus himself, we know, was around 30 years of age, but that doesn't mean that all of his disciples were 30. Um, you know, they certainly all didn't have blonde hair, blue eyes. Um, that's the European look. But it's, it's, uh, I find it of interest that, that some of these men, at whatever age they were that they have joined themselves, again, it helps knowing the culture. It helps knowing what they're going through. So these these disciples, as they are as they are coming up, and maybe they've been with another rabbi, and something has happened to that rabbi. Again, there are so many blanks that are missing from scripture, and these men, Jesus calls them, and they leave everything. They leave the rabbinical school they're in, they leave their work, they leave their homes, their families, and they're all out there on the road with Jesus. Mason, yeah, don't they also? I think they do it nowadays. I'm not sure they did it then, but didn't they have Jewish boys read something from a synagogue? So they do, yes. So the synagogue worship, which actually started back in the Babylonian exile, the the synagogue, when, when they are reading, they actually, part of the rabbinical school was actually to learn the entire Torah by memory. So when we're talking, for example, <clears throat> some people say, well, how is it possible for Paul, for example, to start a church and leave it in three weeks? Well, you're not talking about people who were illiterate in the scriptures. Even the unbelievers knew the scriptures to the point where just about every male child would have had the entire Torah memorized. Exactly. They were not enlightened, which is why I believe why Paul says what he does in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when he speaks about the light and the wisdom and the foolishness of the world, the wisdom of God. He ties all of those things together. So what does this look like then for us in Psalm 1? I'm going to wrap this up because I want to go to the next psalm. So Psalm 1, what we did was we broke this down and I showed you that there were several triplicates that are found in this passage. So everybody turn with me to Psalm chapter 1. And I want 
you to walk through this with me because we did talk about some of these things before. So I want you to look for things that are threes or triplicate, not because triplicate. Not because the number three is special in itself, but because this was probably as a psalm or a song that was sung. Um, it was probably a way for them to be able to remember the actual psalm um, and the way that it was put together. So let's let's talk then at, at for for Psalm one. If you are going to be breaking this down, you've got your piece of paper there um, or your notes, and you're going to break this passage down because you want to try to have a better understanding of what God actually says in His Word. What's the very first thing that you notice about the chapter? It could be it could be anything. There are several answers here, in no particular order. What are they? What do you see? Psalm one. That's right before Psalm two, and right after Job forty-two. I just want to make sure we're all on the same psalm here. <laughs> okay, here we go. Right here, Violet. Um, Someone who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Okay, so how, how would you, just thinking off the top of your head, how would you break this down? What would you call this section? And this is just in verse 1 you're speaking of, right? Okay. The righteous and the wicked. Okay, contrast. so contrast between the righteous and the wicked. Okay, keep going. Okay. So they don't walk in the counsel of the wicked? Okay, so walk not. Yeah. They don't stand. Stand not. And they don't sit. Okay, so what's the progression here? Down. That, that's, that's it in a nutshell, right there. One word, down. That's the progression. You see a lot. What does he do? He goes down to the plains of Jordan. He sees the well-watered grass for his cattle. And then the next time we hear of Lot, where's he at? Sitting at, the gate. Sitting at the gate as an elder of the city. And he even goes out and talks with his sons and with his daughter's husbands. Job actually had multiple children. And when he goes out of the city, what do we find? Job walks out, he flees from the city, and he's got his wife, Lot. He flees from the city, and he's got just two kids left. Two daughters. And in fact, they're barely out of the city. And Lot's wife wants what she has so badly, she looks back, despite the warnings of God, and God takes her life imprisoning her in the salt. The progression of a man who looks out and he has, he could have had any aspect of, of, of Palestine at that time, any aspect of the promised land that he wanted, God could have blessed him immensely. And one of the next times you find him, his own sons, which were also his grandsons, Moab and Ammon, are a thorn in the flesh of Israel. Until they are destroyed. That's a pretty bad progression. Mm -hmm. And it all went downhill. Did you have something else, Violet? Okay, 
So th this is the first progression, and we're not even out of verse 1 yet. So here we have, these are the contrast. Who else? What's something else that you see? Anything. Anthony. Um, uh, he, and, he, and he meditates on <coughs> God's law day and night. Okay, so this is this is things you could label this. Um, you could label this the blessings of the righteous, right? Yes. Okay. So one meditates day and night. Day and night. on God's word. And he does it day and night. What does this tell you? What does this one aspect here tell you, Anthony? Day and night. The does that mean that from the time that he gets up, he's got his nose in the Bible, and he's reading every single minute, and he never eats, and then he goes to bed at night, and he never sleeps because he's got his nose in the Bible? No. No? What do you think it means? It means he's thinking about it. Okay, so here we have a meditation. So basically it is a continual renewing of the spirit, the mind, oh. the spirit, the heart, and the heart. Mike, very no, good. He's right, day and night. Um, basically, uh, he's always in it. He's all, it, so it's a it's continual. Like, yeah, it's like he can, when you catch him at a spare time, he's not playing video games. He's in the Word. So we talk in First Thessalonians chapter 5, for example, pray without ceasing. Mm -hmm. Now, we're driving down the road. I hope none of you bow your head and close your eyes and fold your hands together while you're driving, praying down the road. But it is to have a continual attitude of prayer so that that if, if your heart and your spirit is right before God and the Holy Spirit impresses upon your heart somebody that needs to have prayer, if you're in the right frame of mind, you can spend time praying for that individual. This is a continual time of prayer. It's not just sitting down. Now, can it be a time where we're kneeling down or sitting down or laying down in bed and we're praying? Absolutely. And we're not discounting any of that. The question is, what is it that you believe that you are supposed to do in regards to being able to maintain this? Now, I, I do want to say something that, that you mentioned, Mike, in regards, to the, uh, in, in regards to the video games. We don't live in the same world, and I want to be very careful here, but we don't live in the same world as the first century. They didn't even have electricity to charge up their iPads. I'm not sure how they did it, but they didn't have electricity, okay? So what's that? Lightning. Yeah, exactly. Held it up on a kite. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'm not saying that those things, and we would, be, we would be remiss to say that they did not have distractions that were available in their day as well. I mean, in fact, we talk about Jonathan Edwards and some of the things that he addresses are time management and making sure that he is not wasting his time. Spurgeon used to say some of the same things. But let me let you on a little secret. 
there were times for quite a while Spurgeon actually smoked a cigar and said he did it to the glory of God. Not only that, but Charles Spurgeon actually read science fiction. Heretic. I know, heretic. Bring him up at the next church discipline meeting. Now, what does that tell you? Does that mean that we, that, that we are to secloister our, or cloister ourselves or to seclude ourselves away from every single thing that the world has to offer? No, no I mean, there's nothing wrong with going out and eating a dinner, right? Is there anything wrong with going out and watching a play or going to a concert? No. No, as long as it's something that is pleasing to God, right? Yes. So I, I, th I think that there has to... What's that? That's true, and, and we can we can idolize a lot of things. I mean, if 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 we're not careful, we can we can. And I know Dad and I have spoken about this for for in in the past in ministry. But there was a time many Bible schools, and I don't know if you saw this where, where you went, but those who were going into the ministry really were expected to, in order of importance, was your ministry your family, and everything else somewhere after that. And there are a lot of families that suffered because of that. And so it's not that there was anything wrong with ministry, but assuming that it has a place higher than the order or the priority that God has placed in our life or in our ministry actually puts undue pressure on everybody around you, not just with the man of God or the minister, because he can't live up to that expectation. I mean, for example, anybody here know the name Billy Sunday? Does anybody know what happened to two of his sons? Died as drunkards, unbelievers. And yet here's a man who preached all over America and saw revival come to America in different parts. Why? Why did he have so much success in ministry but not in his family? Because he didn't spend time with the family, maybe? He didn't have the order right. I think that's Yep. Exactly. Vody Bauckham says the same thing. Your 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 family and and if the Lord ever calls any of you into ministry, that would be one of my number one recommendations. Don't forget the priorities that God has placed in your life. If you lose your family, you don't have or you will have a very reduced ministry. Somebody had their hand raised. Yes, Gabe. I thought I saw somebody. Some people will replace their ministry as a priority of, of their relationship or spending time with God. So they, they, they feel that you know, God should be your number one priority, right? Mm -hmm. But that's your relationship with God, not your ministry. And they, they, some people put it as, well, I'm doing ministry, so I'm doing God's work, so that's my number one priority. Instead of your relationship with God, and then everything falls underneath that. Right. And yes, ma'am. I recently learned that there are people who are in missionaries who put ministry above their own family. Oh, yes. So therefore their children suffer because their relationship, the sister and the 
We, we, we can tell you case after case after case. Go ahead, Dan. No, I was just, I was just thinking along that line. Yeah. Uh, back in the old days, when missionaries went to the field, and they felt that, uh, well, many of them did, they would, rather than take their children with them, they left them in the States, or they would put them in missions, uh, like schools on the mission field, send them hundreds of miles away or maybe to a different country where they would be educated, but they would be separated. Right. And many of them suffered from that. Many of them lost their families. They lost their children right. because, because of that. Right. My, my priority has always been God first, then my family, then my ministry, right. in that order. And the, pro the problem is, is when you say God first, just like anything else, when you're in school, you feel like all you're doing is studying, mm -hmm. that your relationship with God is the same. And it's not. That's work. Right. Yeah. It's work to better your, yeah. better the ministry, but it's not the same. Like Gabe was saying, I mean, yeah. I, yeah, I was going to say, I, I, I went to school with I don't know how many uh, uh, MKs, and they were, they didn't really know their folks very well. They, no. went to, they were in boarding schools. Yeah, boarding and schools. some of them, some of them were just fine. Yeah. yeah. But I, I have a very, very good friend who is a, who is a brother who is one year younger. And his brother is so anti-Bible, anti-Christian, because of the way he felt his dad yep. abandoned them. Yes. One year different. His older brother is one of my closest friends through growing up in school. You know, didn't see it that way. So, but it was it was a it was a cost of a relationship to his parents. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and they were they were taught you know missionaries felt that it was a sacrifice uh, to to do that, to send their children off. And in a way, it's a sacrifice in that it costs money. But the long-term, the residual after-effects of that are really seismic. Think about this. You're going into a new area when, when there's a reason why God gives the order that he does in Titus chapter 1 and 1 Timothy 3 for the work of an elder. What is it? Those qualifications that are there include the way that the man responds to his wife and to his children. So here you've got a missionary who goes into a people group that need to have not just the words proclaimed to them, but the life modeled for them of what it means to live for Christ, to have your family with you. And you know what they did? They actually, I believe in my estimation, I'm not questioning whether they believe they did it because God wanted them to do. I'm just saying from my estimation and my understanding of scripture, I would never endorse somebody to go from this church if you're going to leave your kids somewhere, if you've got kids at home. And the reason is because you do a disservice to that people group that you are with by not being able to evidence the love of Christ, a Christian family, a godly marriage to that tribe or to that people group. I, Go ahead. If I could just add something to the matter of keeping the family together, uh, there, there are many, have been and still are missionaries who will uh, go out and raise support to go to fields where God's called them to, and they will travel alone. And, and in some ways I can understand that, but personally, we always...
travel as a family. Uh, we had a, we started out in a little 24-foot travel trailer. There were seven of us in that thing. Right, Neil? Yep. Six yes, we or were seven. close family. We were a close family. <laughs> and, but we, 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 for two and a half years, we traveled all over the, all the states together. And the churches, uh, pastors appreciated the fact that he came as a family and represented, you know, the ministry God had called us. Yep. Uh, but, and I've always advocated that, even when I pastored, I wanted missionaries to come with their families so that we could see what their families are like, what their relationship is, you know, with, with each other, and see what kind of ministry they have as a family. And that's, just, that's important. It, it, it's one of the reasons why, number one, I, I, I turned down this last, it was July or August time frame, somebody contacted me, a missionary wanted to come and present their ministry, and I asked them a series of questions when they call, and I asked him if his family would be coming, and he said no. I said, then I'm sorry, we're not going to be interested in having you come. And he wanted to know why, and I told him. I said, because your ministry includes your family and if you're going around without your family it tells me something about what you'll do when you get to the field when we when we rewrote the constitution or the amendment for the constitution in regards to calling a pastor here the way that it was set up before and they did do this they would call somebody to come and he would come without his family, he would come without his wife, and he would show up on a Sunday morning, preach, preach Sunday night, and then they'd vote for him afterwards. I'm sorry, but you do not know a man after one time of preaching. And so we rewrote it. It actually, there's actually a process, should something ever happen to me, that I believe is a biblical process in regards to calling somebody to be able to be a, a pastor. And it has to include the family. Uh, my wife, my wife and I, we wouldn't even think of going somewhere to to do some kind of long term ministry without both of us going. I mean that that that's. I mean I I just don't see. To me, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever to exclude the family. I mean, even when we went to Liberia, Violet and I went first to on a visit together, so that she could see where it was that we might be living. I had to know where she stood. Mike. Regard to this uh, particular subject we're talking about, because um, I've often thought about it in the past. Um, a lot of times, I've seen it over the years, where somebody either comes a comes to Christ or decides to go on a, mis a missionary trip or a ministry, and all of a sudden, let's say it's the man of the house, he just isolates himself a lot. Because God is first, and we just talked about it. And in the Billy Sunday story, um, the different situations that that could happen, and where all of a sudden what they're doing is compartmentalizing one thing to another thing to another thing. In other words, this is God, this is my family, this is work, this is the church, or whatever it may be. And... I often thought about that, and I think that's a, people do it in careers, mm -hmm. but in a sense, I think it's very dangerous because your relationship to God includes your family, yep. and obviously the question is, if somebody has a situation where they're focused totally on, this is my study time, this is God, this and that, almost to the point where they alienate their wife or spouse or family, 
they're not going to be perfect in their worship and relationship with God, wouldn't you think? Yep. It's going to be a defect in a sense. I mean, in the case of Billy Sunday, God still used the flaws for his good, mm -hmm. his purpose. Absolutely. But it could be better if your sure. family's involved. Sure. I mean, and that's that's why God has designed the order that he has. First and foremost, above all things, we worship God to his honor and his glory. Uh, that's what you see throughout all of the Psalms. You see it throughout the scripture. Uh, uh, God comes down in the cool of the evening, even in the Garden of Eden, and he walks with man, and he has that fellowship with him. I mean, wouldn't you like to have been a fly on a wall or on one of the trees just to be able to hear what God had to say directly? To Adam and Eve, I mean, that would have been a pretty cool conversation over here. You know, well, what, what, what animals did you name today? Well, I named that one an elephant. Why'd you name that one an elephant? Well, nothing else looked like an elephant to me. Why'd you name that one fly? <laughs> exactly. Or a mosquito. Squish it. No, there was no death in the garden. So, I, I want to show you two more things here. And I've gone ahead and broken them down for you. But I would like you to write these down because I really want to encourage you to... <laughs> not to sneeze but I really want to encourage you to, to work on breaking down the scripture there are two more and there are several things here in this chapter but the blessed man and there's you can do an entire section just on what me, what does it mean to be blessed but he says one of the things that he says is this blessed man the one who doesn't walk the wrong way, doesn't stand the wrong way, doesn't sit the wrong way. He meditates on these things, the blessings of the righteous. But what else does he do? He's like a tree. What are the three things that you find about a tree that he mentions in this passage? What's the first one? Planted by the water. Okay. Planted by the water. Okay. What's the next one? Deep roots. Well, right here. Right here. Planted by streams of water. What are the next two things in, in verse 3? Yield its fruit. You're, you're, you're right, but we're going to get to that in just a moment. Yield, yield its fruit. Okay. Yields fruit. What's the third one? Actually, I think that's together. I think you want to use that as instead of three does not wither, yields fruit does not wither. It's actually it's prosper. Is three is a better form for three. Yeah, and all that he does does not prosper, or, or all that he does prosper. So does not wither, or he prospers. He prospers in the word. He prospers in the blessed life. So we'll include these here. We'll put a we'll put a slash here. So these are the three things. But what do those things mean? And again, for the sake of time, we're not going to be able to go over that. Growth. But to be planted by the water, essentially, is growth. Now, every tree, the closer it gets to the water, a tree that is not close to the water, what's going to happen to it? It can die if it's too far from the water. Uh, if, for example, and I've mentioned this before, but in 1973, in the Sahara Desert, the tree of Tener, it was the only standing tree in the entire desert. There was no tree close to it by 100 miles. 
And they said that this one lonely tree that was out in the middle of the Sahara Desert, when they actually, when it died, it was actually hit by a drunk Libyan guy going through the desert and creamed the tree and the killed tree. it. The only tree and killed it. <laughs> and and it is said that when that happened, they dug down and they found that the roots went down into the ground over 120 feet deep wow. to be able to find water. And the spiritual parallel would be this. If you're going through a dry desert in your life, dig down until you get to water. There are times we can pick up our Bibles, and, and, and I've heard it said, and there are times I've said it as well, well, you should only read your Bible if, if, uh, if you feel like it. Or you should only pray if you feel like it. No. The times when you don't feel like it, the times when you don't feel like reading or you don't feel like praying, uh, sometimes that's the time that we need to get on our face and just ask God for enlightenment. Because God's always there. He, I mean, He already, His Holy Spirit dwells within our hearts, so He never leaves us. But digging into His Word until, and, and there are times, I'll be honest, there are times that I'm, I can get so parched. You can even, and, and Dad can attest to this, even as a minister, you can be full of being prepared to preach or preparing a message and completely forget to water your own soul. It's important whether you're teaching or ministering or whether your responsibility is to take care of the kids or, or to teach them. Don't forget to build your relationship with God. It's vital. The second thing, the wicked. Tell me what three things you see about the wicked. Okay. All right. And in the next verse, we'll find the next two. What are they? The number five, at verse five. Yep. Be condemned at the time of judgment. Sinners will have no place among the godly. Okay, so condemned, no place amongst the godly. They will be apart from Christ. They will not have the heavenly rewards. Um but it says here, not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. So it's actually a twofold aspect here. You've got not just condemned by God, but you also have separated separation from the righteous. If one person gets into heaven, with unforgiven sin, it will no longer be heaven, it would be hell. Scott? I think, I, I like the way um, it's broken down. When you deal with walk, there's movement um, in the second. So you have walk, in two you have stand, and in NASB, I think in NASB, uh, it's, it's also, uh, you will not stand, cannot stand in judgment, and then will not sit with the righteous. So there's that same same triplet in the same order that comes down. And 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 he actually there's actually three things there and and uh, nobody's mentioned this yet but if you actually look in verse 1 there's the first part walks not and then he walks not in what in the council in the council of who of the wicked. So there's actually three things in that verse. And then the same thing in the next part, or the next triplicate is, stands not in the way 
He could have said the same thing. So why does he say? Well, that's for you to find out, for you to actually spend some time looking. But he uses counsel, way, and the seat to reference where it is that they're standing, walking, or sitting. And then he calls them wicked sinners and then scoffers. And I'll give you a clue. There's a reason why he calls the wicked scoffers, and it is found in Romans chapter 1. God eventually will give somebody over to the depravity of their minds. It's a very strong progression here. Okay? So I want to wrap up this particular section, and I want us to look at Psalm 51. And we're not going to go through the whole thing. It would take way too long to be able to do this. But I want to go over Psalm 51, and I want to break a couple of things down for you, and then we're going to take a quick break, um, and then we will do the second part. Does anybody need this? Does anybody need... I'll take a picture of it just in case. <laughs> Turn the camera around. <laughs> okay. Psalm 51 is probably one of the, in my humble estimation, is probably one of the most poignant passages of scripture because we see four aspects here really that are that are entailed in prayer and I want to just break these down for you and and, and for you to see how this is broken down in Psalm 51 these are these would be the main headings if I was going to break down this chapter okay now I would obviously probably do, you would have to do a lot more than this. If you're going to speak for 40, 45, 50 minutes, it's going to do, do more. It's going to take more than just standing and giving four main points and then pronounce a benediction. But to be able to do this, I want to give you the main breakdowns of this chapter so that you can then take this and work through it yourself and see what it actually means. So in Psalm 51, what is the, without anybody looking at your, at your Bibles, without anybody looking at the notes or the title headings, how would you define Psalm 51? Prayer of repentance. Okay, that's a great one. Prayer of repentance. What else? From what you know of Psalm 51. What else would you say about the chapter? Remember, again, you're the one that's breaking this down eventually when you're actually working through your own study. So it may be that you see something different because our minds are not all the same. But there are some key elements that are in here that are found in many chapters throughout the Psalms and even into the New Testament you'll find some of these same passages like in 1 John. So what, what, what else would you say comes out of Psalm 51? It's David's. Okay. Song of Repentance. Okay, so it, uh, David, and it's a song or a hymn. Why would that be important, do you think? Because he was convicted. Okay, there, there's another one, conviction. Well, in, 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 in the Bible, you would actually find that a lot of times that the prayers to God's prayer to God was actually a replication of 
a particular psalm. So there was something that they prayed or there were some similarities. Nehemiah does this. David does this. Solomon does this. Uh, Hezekiah does this, for example, in Isaiah. Um, so, so there is some similarities. But what, what would you think it would be important about a song or a hymn? You remember it more. There we go. Brother Scott and Sterling have been working and they do something with every new song that we sing. What is it? Practice. Well, besides practice, on a Sunday, what do they do on a Sunday? Play it through. Play it through. Talk about it. Talk about it. Three Sundays in a row. Repetition. Repetition. It's a way, the Psalms are actually a memorization tool to be able to see how God, and, and it's, it's a great reminder, for example, if you spend enough time in Psalm 119, for example, thy word have I in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Wherewithal shall he, that verse 11, Psalm uh, verse, verse 9, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word. Verse 89, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And what happens when you're having a difficult time or you find yourself in a situation where you need to be reminded of Scripture if you're not actually hiding God's word in your heart, you're going to have a difficult time. Mason, you had something? Oh, I was just going to say... Uh... Uh, lament. A lament? Uh, a good portion of songs is that. You, you, you and I, I just, I just finished in Lamentations in, in my reading. I'm going through the Old Testament uh, again. But you want to know why Jeremiah was a weeping prophet? <laughs> Read what God prophesied would happen to the children of Jerusalem, to the daughters, to the wives to the men, to the princes. There's a reason why Jeremiah wept. And it was because God was getting ready to wreak havoc and destruction and judgment and there wasn't anything that Jeremiah could do but proclaim this is the word of God, it's coming and there's nothing you can do to change it. Yep. He wept. He knew what was coming. And and what we're talking again, then this is one of those things where you should see the context. In the context, we're we're not talking about he got a little tear in his flinty eye. A lament is a wailing. If you've ever heard that they call it ululation in the Middle East. And if you've ever been or heard you know, the women, they, they, they can do this thing with their throat. Well, that's something not just the women do, but the men do. And, and it's a way to be able to raise the voice in a piercing tone to be able to have somebody else to be able to understand what you're going through. This is a lament. This, is, this isn't just, oh, I'm feeling sorry for Jerusalem. No, Jesus is standing on a hill, probably overlooking the Kidron Valley, overlooking Jerusalem. And he is just wailing, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, would that 
I could gather you under my wings as a chick does, or a hen does with her chicks. Careful. That proves that he was transgender. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That was actually yeah. a statement made by a Methodist preacher. Oh, my gosh. Because yeah. She, it was like a chicken, so he, he's obviously a transgender. Yeah. yeah. So, so, yes, Mike. I, I went to Jeremiah about a week and a half ago, too, and you're reading through it, and it's alarming what's going to happen. It's the judgment of God, the wrath. And I, it made me think about the Western world, America, and us as believers, mm -hmm. any believer, um, have a tendency to dismiss things. Or, oh yeah, we're under judgment, and this is going to happen. They're going to go after their own, you know, chase after their own sins, and they're they're left. And it says, it's actually much more than that that could happen. Yep. And and not just with us. We're talking about with friends, families, people starving. Things could really happen. Had a discussion with a household the other day because she was talking about something, and I says, "You know what? Growing up overseas, whole war period, you know, and then after, as a child, and then traveling through the Middle East and different parts of Africa and so on, opens your eyes to the fact that this could happen in America, and people think it can't. Yeah. And we always live in that Americans." Most, but even probably in, in mostly Europe, I've seen it in Germany, I've seen the progression change there through the years, from the 70s when they were still connected to World War II to now, yeah. where they don't even think about it. Um, Jeremiah is a picture of what could happen with judgment, and it should cause us to feel the same way. Absolutely. Let's break this down real quick. Here's the four points. Point number one is verses one and two. Again, this is just how I would break it down. Okay? Point number one. Is worship. And this is verses one and two. Why would I say worship? We're talking about a prayer of repentance, but why would it, why would we say worship? Communicating with God. Okay, communicating with with God. You're talking about His loving kindness and tender mercies. Loving kindness and tender mercies, and there's a third point. When we're talking about worship, worship itself, you and I are always worshiping. Always. Every moment of your day, you are worshiping. You are either worshiping God or you are worshiping self. Those are the only two options you have. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't fix breakfast, but again, or, or do whatever we do, or brush our teeth, or shower, or whatever. But we could be using those times to the profit and to the glory and the worship of God. Uh, how about this? You'll never actually get in the shower. Most people will not unless you're actually told or encouraged to do so. But you'll never get in the shower and, and rejoice for hot and cold running water until you've lived in a country where there was no running water. 
you'll never get in your car again and be glib about starting it and cranking it and driving off down the road and do 60 miles an hour down the 40 zone on Yellowstone without actually being thankful for the fact that you don't have to ride a bicycle. And so you see, everything that we do is worship. And this is what David is doing. He is worshiping God right from the beginning because he's already had the worship of self, hasn't he? he he's, he? He's not a young man here, by the way. In his sin with Bathsheba, he was probably about 60 years old. And, and, and in this, I mean, a lot of pictures that you see, it's, you know, he's a young man and she's a beautiful young woman. Yes, she was a beautiful young woman. But it didn't relinquish him and the responsibility that he had to do what was right. He was the king. He was supposed to be out on the battlefield with his men. And he failed. So he's already worshipped self. Nathan comes and points his finger at him and he says, You are the man. You worshipped yourself. Now this is the judgment that is coming. And this psalm is actually written in response to that. So the first aspect of any prayer, and you'll find this throughout the psalms, is worship. And we actually mentioned this the last time we spoke, and that is you have to prepare your heart first. You can't worry about somebody else. You have to worry about your heart between you and God. The second part of this is verse 3 through verse 6. 3 through verse 6, I entitled this one Confession. Okay? Here's what confession is. Let me tell you what confession is not. Confession is not, oops, sorry, I got caught. Jesus, forgive me. I'm sorry. No, confession is acknowledging what God already knows about that sin and us admitting with God what he already knows and what he already calls it. This is why I've, I, I have corrected several of you. For example, when we talk about somebody who's an alcoholic, the Bible doesn't call them an alcoholic. The Bible says they are a drunkard. When, when I was in Liberia the first time and I spoke with a man by the name of Paul Zawolo and I asked him, I said, we went through the, the, the steps of, of the Ten Commandments and I asked him, uh, one of the questions I said was, have you ever looked at a woman with lust in, in, in your heart or have you ever committed adultery? He said, no. I said, have you ever looked with lust? Well, I got a problem with my, eye, my eyeballs. It's the way they describe it over there. In other words, he couldn't keep his eyes to himself. And so the real issue was not the eyes. The real issue was what? The heart. And so what I had to do was bring him through the purposes of the law to a point where he understood what God's demands were. God's demands were perfection, holiness. It wasn't five for you, five for me. God's going to toss a coin and still let you into heaven. So that second aspect is confession of sins. And he says here, I know my transgressions. He doesn't butter, he doesn't gloss it over. He's admitting what God already knows about him. And if we think that we are fooling God or fooling anybody else, we're not. Resolute. This is very Pauline. If you look at Paul's letters, and, um, he's very much in, in reflection of the law. 
Absolutely. I can't. I can't follow the law. What it does is it reflects my ineptitude. That's Romans. It's Romans. Yeah. And, and and here's the thing. Here's the thing. When we are when we are looking at whether it's Romans or Galatians or Hebrews or or wherever it may be, that reflection that we're doing is the same thing that I had shared with the men on Thursday night uh, when we were talking. The things that were preached: sin, righteousness, and the coming judgment. This is what this is what Psalm one is: sin. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in this sin. Righteousness. The righteous man lives like this, and you get to verse five and verse six, and what do you find? The the ungodly will not enter the congregation of the righteous, but the way of the righteous will do what? Will lend to eternal life. Wow. It doesn't matter where you start. Whether you start in Genesis, you go to Psalms, you go to the New Testament, you find the same message. God hasn't given more than one message. It's a message that cuts across culture. One message. Sin, righteousness, coming judgment. That's what this is. So we have the worship to God. If you're struggling with a particular sin, don't bask in that sin. Spend time worshiping God. The closer you get to God, the more you will revel in His holiness. Then you confess your sin. The third part is the resolution. What are you going to do about this sin? This is verses 7 through 13. What are we going to do about it? Purge me with hyssop, he says. He's already admitted his sin. Now how are we going to resolve this? Purge me. Get rid of the offense. Get rid of that which is offending you. I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Do you think David was broken? Yeah. There's no way David wrote Psalm 51 without being broken. So he gets down to the end and he says, in fact, verse 11, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. David is actually writing after worshiping to God. He is afraid of losing or the Holy Spirit being removed from him at this point. That can't happen to a New Testament believer, by the way. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Wonderful. Now we've come and there's a complete shift here. It's, it's almost like a double paragraph when we get to verse 14. Because from verse 14 through... 19, we have rejoicing. You see the progression? We start with worship. We confess our sins because you can't confess your sins unless you understand how holy God is. When you understand how holy God is, you've confessed your sins, you've resolved the matter. This is what Romans 12, 1 and 2 is, if you want to look to the New Testament, and that is renewing of our minds so that we may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And then once all of that is done, then comes the rejoicing. Look at some of the verses here. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. 
O God of my salvation, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. There's, there's no more sin here that's, that's been dealt with. This is almost like a four stanza progression of holy, holy, holy. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. How in the world is it possible for David to sing praise, to open his mouth and sing the praises of God after he just committed murder and adultery and a host of other things? Because David knows something that a lot of Christians today just don't get. And that is that God has forgiven him. Because look what he says about blood guiltiness. He says in verse... 14 again, deliver me from blood guiltiness. David recognizes that God has not only taken care of the sin, he's taken care of the guilt that goes with that. There's, there's no reason for David to continue living in the past. And there are a lot of Christians that beat themselves up over and over and over because of something they said, they did, they acted, they got a divorce, they did this, they did the other, they got drunk, they did whatever. Has God forgiven you for that sin? If he has, you need to leave it in the past. God's not bringing it up against you and, your re and, and holding it against your account. You've got a zero account legally with God. It has been paid. Sam? So what if David had an opportunity through the scriptures to see a glimpse of a covenant of grace then? I believe he did. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah, for, for for him for him to know again, we're gonna look at this tomorrow, but but the difference between mercy and grace to me is evident right here in Psalm fifty one. Mercy is is not being given what we deserve, and grace is being given what we don't deserve. Mm -hmm. That's mercy and grace in a nutshell, and only God can get, give and bestow both of those on a believer. Sacrifices of God are a broken heart, verse 17. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. What David is saying here is this. Because God has forgiven me, I can now sing the praises of God, not just to myself, but I can worship in the congregation with the people now because I can stand before them as a man who is no longer condemned. Only a Christian can sing that hymn. Do you have something, Dad? Oh, go ahead. To the end here. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was I was wondering if it would be good for for you to explain verse eleven, what the difference was the Holy Spirit's ministry in the Old Testament versus the New Testament. Yes. Today. So so why, he, why did David say this? That that's that's I, again we we have to look at a couple of things. We look in context. You have to look at what happens in the New Testament as well. So to kind of sum up the aspect of the Holy Spirit, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was not given to dwell per indwell the believers permanently. Now that does not mean that they were saved any differently than what we are. There were still there still had to be even all the way you look at Noah. Noah found what? Grace, Grace in the eyes of the Lord. He still had to believe in the future, the coming, the promised Messiah. Just like we look back to the Messiah, the difference is that when the Lord Jesus Christ came, you had a period of silence, 430 years roughly, 
Jesus Christ comes, he fulfills his ministry, and as he is speaking to his disciples in John chapter 14 and 15, he tells them that the Holy Spirit is going to come, but the Holy Spirit could not come until he left. And so on the day of Pentecost, what happened? The Holy Spirit comes down. By the way, he wasn't a dove. It says he appeared, it appeared as a dove, and it appeared as a tongue of fire. It wasn't actually a tongue of fire on their heads. This was just an appearance. This is the only way they could describe it. And at that moment, the Holy Spirit comes down. And from that point on, Ephesians chapter 4, we learn that every believer is actually given the Holy Spirit as a seal and a promise, a down payment, if you will, of their inheritance, which is to come. That did not happen in the Old Testament. Does everybody understand the difference now? No, in the Old Testament, like in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon them to empower them, but He did not permanently dwell in within them. Right, yeah. and, and there are even times that unbelievers were filled with the Spirit of God. Even Saul, for example, Saul was not a believer. Saul, at the very end of his life, is consorting with the witch of Endor. Now, when the Holy Spirit comes upon him, there are times, a couple of times in Saul's life where what, what happens? The Spirit of God comes upon him and he prophesies just like the other prophets. He tells something that's going to happen and he does it at or by the work of the Spirit of God. But the Holy Spirit comes and goes in the Old Testament, not in the New. Yes? It's curious that you, you said Saul was not a believer. Yes. And... and, and I know that's commonly a word applied to the New Testament era, just like he's a Christian, he's a believer. In the Old Testament, did they use that word? Did they even have a word? Or did they just say he was not one of the chosen? So the, 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 the term the chosen was not is not, not something that is used. Yeah, we're not talking about the, t the, the, her the heretical TV series um, or that's in the movie house now. No, we're not talking about that. They yeah. they would have said they would have said one who is a believer. Um, they they would have believed that? in Yahweh or belief in God. Okay. Um, but it would have encompassed much more than just a head knowledge. This was somebody who actually lived by what they proclaimed. Okay. And it really wasn't a different. Remember, the early New Testament church is made up of Jews who already know the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't have seen this. This wasn't anything new. The difference is between the Old Testament believer. And the New Testament believer is that Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the Old Testament, has come, and now we are in Christ. New, nobody in the Old Testament knew that. I was always just curious as to the way they referred to themselves before that. No. Well, I mean, in the New, in the New Testament, it wasn't even Christians that used that term first. Yeah. They were called Christians first in Antioch. It was a, it was a derogatory term. They, they called themselves the way, from what I understand. They were followers of the way. And it was yep. the, the way they related to each other. Yep. But I was just curious because you brought up believer. In the Old Testament, when they said believers, what you're saying is it meant similar to are you of? Sure. Faith? Again, people in the Old Testament aren't saved any differently than they are in the New. Yeah. They look forward, we look back. Yeah. But we're looking to the same thing. The meeting point between the Old and the New Testament is the cross. Yeah. The covenant just changes at that point in time. Here's the old versus the new. 
it's it's the same it's the same understanding and, and believing that Christ was coming or has come. Yep. All right. I'm going to go ahead and cut this one off and um, take a quick break, and then we'll come back here in just a couple of minutes. And uh, I'm not going to be very long on this next section, but it's actually one of the books that I'm going to be giving you. Thank you.